Hey, how you doing? I'm so glad that you joined us today, whether you're in one of our uh, East Bay campuses or you're watching online uh, there with our team hosting and you guys are all talking to each other online. Um, it's pretty, pretty cool. And uh, whether you're sitting in one of our auditoriums or you're sitting by yourself at your house or some hotel somewhere in the world, uh, we, we have the same goal. We want to increase your faith. We want to add to your knowledge, but we want that knowledge to be very practical for you uh, as you develop your understanding of the Bible and then develop your understanding of what God offers you and expects of you. Now, at the end of the service, we will be uh, participating in communion. So if you are watching online and you want to grab a crust of bread or a cracker, uh, if you happen to have some juice or even a little bit of wine uh, somewhere, you, want, you might want to get that ready uh, before we close so that we can celebrate communion all over the world together at the same time. All right, so for the past three weekends, we've been talking about God's New Testament, new covenant with everyone in the entire world who puts their faith in Jesus. And we've been pointing out the difference uh, between the new covenant in the New Testament and the old covenant in the Old Testament. And uh, one of the questions that we got in the box was, well, are you telling me to throw out the Old Testament? And uh, that's crazy. Uh, we would never, ever uh, do that. Why in the world would we do that? After 27 years of teaching both Old Testament and New Testament, uh, that, of course, isn't going to stop now. We encourage everyone here to read the entire Bible, especially if you're going to develop strong opinions about the Bible and what should and shouldn't be taught in church. It would be for you to have actually read uh, the Bible uh, but that, that's important for us. So let's talk about that. What is the Old Testament and why is it called old? Uh, all right, so to start with, both the Old Testament and New Testament are old to us. So it's not called old because of its age. It's called old because Jesus made it old when he brought the new. Kind of like when you have a phone and then you get a new phone and all of a sudden your phone is now called your old phone. Uh, it just it's just because Jesus Brought anew. Now, the Jewish scriptures in, in Jesus' day were not called the Old Testament. They weren't called the Old Testament by anyone in the first century, the second century. None of the gospel writers called the Old Testament the Old Testament. That was later uh, when uh, church councils decided that these were the 66 books of the Bible and then they bound them together in the Old Testament, which is everything that happened before Jesus, and the New Testament, which everything that happened after. And that can be confusing if no one explains to you that there really is a difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, the Old Testament, particularly the covenants found in the Old Testament, were for the most part agreements between God and people back then. There's only one covenant that really has much of an effect on you, and that's the covenant God made with Noah. Do you know what that covenant is? That he'll never destroy the earth with a flood again. And when a rainbow appears, that's not for you to see. That's for God to see. Because it reminds him, as evil as this world gets, he made a promise. And so he sees that rainbow and he says, well, all right, I guess I won't destroy him today. <laughs> now, so we benefit from that covenant. But the rest of the covenants aren't about us and really have nothing to do with us. Except that they were made with heroes of the faith. And we read these stories and they're awesome. And these heroes of the faith are actually uh, memorialized in the New Testament. And a lot of them are brought up. A lot of them are quoted. Uh, you go to Hebrews chapter 11, and there's just a whole hall of faith listed of all these Old Testament greats. So, of course, we wouldn't ignore or throw out the Old Testament just because we're living under a new 
covenant that's only found in the New Testament because we would miss out on so much. We would also miss out on all the prophecies where they predicted that another one would come. And you want to see those prophecies because you say, how did Jeremiah know that? How did Isaiah know that? How did Malachi know that? How did Micah uh, know that? Uh, Book of Genesis, how did Moses know that someone else would come and destroy uh, the devil and Jesus would crush the devil under his heel? So we need to read the Old Testament just to know that that exists. We also read the Old Testament because we really relish the promises that are, are, are made there. There's beautiful promises in the Old Testament. Uh, and just because they weren't made to you specifically doesn't mean they don't reflect the heart of God for human beings. Uh, uh, for example, many of us gain strength by uh, something that Jeremiah wrote in chapter 29, verse 11. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Now, the you in this, in, when this was written, it's not you. It's the, the, the Jews that were going into exile. But still, look at what God says to them. You're being punished because you guys were absolutely rebellious for centuries. However, I still love you. And I have plans for you. I'm going to prosper you. I'm going to give you hope and a future. And when that happens, you're going to call upon me. And I'm going to hear you. You're going to call upon me with your whole heart. That's God just like wishing that Israel, uh, Judah actually, would come back to him. And uh, so he's predating that by about 70 years. And Jeremiah is writing about it. Now, That promise is beautiful whether God initially wrote it to us or not. It's like watching a a really good Hallmark movie and making yourself into one of the characters. And uh, you're like, oh, that's just like us, isn't it, honey? And you look over and your mate is snoring. But nevertheless, you're still associating with it and enjoying it. Uh, Let me tell you another one. Uh, The prophet Micah says to Israel, not to us, Micah 6, 8, God has shown you what's good. What does the Lord require of you? Read it. Okay, that wasn't written originally to you, but is it written to you? Exactly. Uh, That's God's heart for human beings. And that doesn't change because Jesus came and brought us a new covenant. There's another way that the Old Testament is priceless, and you should never say, well, I'm a New Testament Christian, so I don't read the Old Testament. And that is because uh, it's the account of God's relationship with an entire nation. Now, scholars will tell us in all of ancient literature, there's not another book like this. Not in any culture, in any time, where it's a story of like 1,500 years of God's relationship to a nation. And so it shows you all the ins and outs of his relationship, both with individuals and with the whole nation, where God made a covenant with this nation in the first year of their existence out in the wilderness and stayed with that covenant until Jesus brought the new covenant. Now, having said that, the old covenant is temporary. If you can define anything that's 1,400 years old as temporary. Uh, So the New Testament, I think we've established, is our covenant, and at the same time, we appreciate everything in the Old Testament. Uh, The New Testament doesn't have an expiration date like the Old Testament does. Uh, And it's different because the the Old Covenant was only for Jewish people. And uh, and only for for those original Hebrews. The New Covenant is for everyone in the world that puts faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the New Testament teaches that God's contract with Israel started right around that first Passover in Egypt... And it ended at that last Passover, right the the evening of Christ's arrest, uh, 
in Jerusalem. And he had dinner with his disciples. And at that dinner, Jesus passed the matzo bread and passed the cup. And he changed Passover. And he said, this, what, what is this bread? And, and he, what is this cup? And we're going to celebrate that at communion because Jesus said, this is the new covenant. A new and better agreement between God and anyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. In who he is and what he accomplished on the cross. And that's why the old is called old and the new is called new. Because when Christ brought the new agreement, the old one was voided. Even for the Jews. And we'll read this in the New Testament today. All right, so even as we appreciate the Old Testament, we also appreciate that none of us are expected to live by the rules of the Old Testament. Because if you're going to live by some of them, you have to live by all of them. And the Old Covenant required continuous animal sacrifice. How would you like to have to continue to do that? You know, Cornerstone, you come and get a donut. <laughs> you sacrifice it to your children. The Old Covenant, that's a bigger... The New Covenant doesn't require animal sacrifice because it's sealed forever in Christ's once and for all sacrifice. So we thank God that we don't live under the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant was conditional upon Israel's behavior. The New Covenant is unconditional based upon Christ's actions on the cross. We receive it not by works but by repentance and by faith. In the Old Covenant, you earned your salvation. In the New Covenant, you receive your salvation. The Old Covenant required, uh, 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 provided very limited access between people and God. And absolutely no women. It was all priests. And very limited. So people didn't know the presence of God like we do in the New Covenant. The New Covenant offers Jesus' presence with you always till the end of the age. And unlimited access right into the throne room of God. We'll read about that today in the book of Hebrews. The Old Covenant, 613 rules and regulations. And it was pass-fail. You couldn't get a B-minus. And uh, you had to obey them all. Uh, the new covenant is much simpler. Under the old covenant, which was an agreement with an entire nation, when Israel's leaders disobeyed and rebelled, the entire nation was punished. So you could just be this innocent lady living on the outskirts of some dusty little town far from Jerusalem. And if the guys in Jerusalem weren't behaving themselves, the entire nation was judged. You included. In the new covenant, people are judged individually. Their behavior is laid out, and whether or not they have received Christ as Lord and Savior will become the issue. But you could have family members that have just rebelled terribly, and you will not face God's judgment because you happen to be in that family. America can rebel against God, and you will not face God's judgment on the nation because God does things differently in the new covenant. All right, so for today's study, we're going to dive into the New Covenant where we will remain for the rest of the series. We're going to spend a month studying what the New Testament writers said about the New Covenant, what it is and how it frees us up to live a fantastic life. We're going to see how the first Christian leaders viewed the Old Covenant and how they learned finally to live under the New Covenant. And once we do that, we can look back and determine what our relationship is to, say, the Ten Commands and other uh, Old Covenant regulations. So are you ready to do that? You ready to study the new? Yeah. All right, good. Get your Bibles open. And let's go first and let's talk about what Christ had to say about the Old Covenant. And no better place than the Sermon on the Mount. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Matthew 5, 17. Now, 
Now, Matthew 5 through 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. And this is one of the times when Jesus laid out uh, more than one of the difference between the old and new. Now, to really understand what Jesus said about the, the old covenant and the new covenant, you'd have to read all the red letters. Because in a lot of his conversations with Pharisees and his disciples, uh, this, this topic came up. And once you learn to identify what it is Jesus is saying, you'll see how he's bringing the new. But let's just look uh, today at the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 17, where Jesus makes it clear, don't think, he says, that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So this answers that question about our relationship with the Old Testament as well. Abolish means destroy. Fulfill means complete. Those are two different things. So Jesus didn't come to destroy the Old Testament. He just came to complete it and bring the Old Covenant to a designated end. The Old Testament is completed in Christ. Not destroyed, just concluded. All right, skip down to verse 21 where Jesus starts laying out the New Covenant. You have heard that was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. And this would have got their attention because they're getting ready to Is he saying that's not, that doesn't apply anymore? Because if he was abolishing the old covenant, that is what he would be saying. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother and sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says... You fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Well, what did Jesus do just now with the old covenant? He expanded it. He said, you, your laws that were given to you at Sinai just dealt with the result of rage. I want to talk to you about the rage. Because the rage is as much of a sin as the result. And if we could deal with the rage, then, then uh, as you know... Uh, most murder happens between people who know each other. So he said, if we could deal with that, then that, that's going to take care of a lot of, uh, of the actual murdering. So, you know, you've heard it said, don't murder. I, I tell you, watch your anger. All right, so let's go down to verse 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And they had heard that. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Look at what he's doing again. The Old Covenant talks about the action. The New Covenant talks about the motive behind the action, the lust behind the adultery. Without lust, there would be no adultery. And so he's saying, let's take care of the heart way before the actions take place. Look at verse 31. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. And that's true. Back then, a man could divorce his wife. A woman couldn't divorce her husband. She was owned by her husband. But he could divorce her. And uh, Jesus was opposed to that. So he says, I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except if she is sexually immoral makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And so Jesus makes divorce even more restrictive. Uh, another one he talks about, don't take oaths. Just say yes or no. Look at verse 38. You've heard that it was said, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So that was the law of, of justice, or we might even call it revenge, uh, legal revenge. Uh, but I tell you, don't resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So this is several things altogether, but really the... the, the, the uh, 
when you look back away and look at the whole thing, basically Jesus took the right of revenge away from people because that's never been good for us. And even though in the Old Testament it was legal, Jesus now, under the New Covenant, says, uh, I don't want humans reciprocating to each other uh, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. That's just not a good thing, and, 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 and justice will be for me. And then Jesus even once said, I didn't even come to judge. And he's the one who would have the right to judge. Uh, so he says, I don't want you to judge either. Judge not, lest you be judged. So Jesus made uh, the new covenant uh, not necessarily easy, especially when he says things like verse 48. Look at verse 48. Let's all practice this this, this week. Just obey Jesus in verse 48. You'll be fine. Be perfect, he says. <laughs> all right, Jesus, got it. Got it. Yeah. So it should be quickly evident to us that even though Jesus doesn't lay down 613 new things, what he does say is darn right uh, impossible to obey without the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, which helps us. All right, the Sermon on the Mount continues there, but I think the point is clear that just as Israel struggled to obey the old covenant, we will struggle to obey the new, and we need the power of the Holy Spirit in order to help us. And that's all the more reason not to hang on to the old and add the new to it. Not to mix and match, but to let go of the old and live in the new. Like Jesus said later in Matthew chapter 9. Let's go there. Verse 16. Matthew 9, 16. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Now, Jesus' metaphor here about wine and wineskins is lost to us because we don't use wineskins anymore. But back then, if you had a wineskin, which was an, made of an animal gut, actually, you, uh, you kept wine or something in there to keep it moist. If it dried out, you threw it out because it, 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 wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't hold wine, especially new wine, once you pour it in, and it ferments and expands, that, that's gonna, that, that those little cracks are going to become greater and you're going to make a mess and you're going to lose the whole thing. So Jesus instead refers to us as new wineskins that he has made new and then he pours his new wine into that without mixing new wine into an old wineskin. He's referring to the old covenant as an old wineskin and he says don't try to pour the new into the old. So true Christianity is not a blend of an old agreement and a new agreement. It is an appreciation of the old, but a living under the, the new. And Cornerstone, we've got to get this right for our own sanity and for our good news to actually be good news to our friends and even to the next generation. Uh, when we participate in a mix-and-match method, uh, we end up with a confusing mix Having said that, many of us grew up in churches where we were taught that the entire Bible was this one word of God and uh, that each part of the Bible held the very same weight and it was to be read and believed as if the whole thing was the same across the board. Instead of 66 very different books organized in old and new with Christ at the center point of history. Now, anyone who actually reads the entire Old Testament and then reads the entire New Testament feels this tension. No one has to tell you that the two books are very different. Uh, Christ tells us to love our enemies, but you read in the Old Testament, you're supposed to destroy your enemies. Uh, the Old Testament promises earthly riches to Israel, 
and so then prosperity teachers take those Old Testament promises and create this new covenant that we're all supposed to be able to get rich uh, on, on planet earth. Even though Jesus never promised that in the new covenant. The Old Testament offers a conditional um, I will perform as long as you perform type of promise with Israel. The New Testament promises are unconditional, uh, offering grace and eternal life to any repentant sinner. Uh, no matter how many times you sin and no matter how many times you repent, grace and mercy never run out in the New Covenant. Uh, so just don't make the common mistake that Christians have made when they attempt to live with one foot in the Old Testament and one foot in the New Testament. When you do that, your lifestyle will automatically lean towards legalism. Your home will be like that. Your church will be like that. The way you think will be like that. It will automatically lead towards you judging other people. Even though Jesus said not to do that. Uh, your children will feel that tension and even the hypocrisy of you acting like you're living under all these rules that the children can see you're not completely obeying all those rules. You're, you're picking and choosing the ones uh, that you want to take with you into your new covenant faith. And your friends will be confused with how you reconcile the Old Testament with the New Testament. Better to just obey the New Testament in regards to the Old Testament and take the same strategy that Jesus and the New Testament writers had, uh, where they honored Jewish scriptures, but they lived under a new covenant. All right, let's talk about those first New Testament believers. Uh, when Christ ascended to, sit to heaven, he left the disciples in charge, which was a crazy thing for him to do. Uh, and they had just been with Christ for three, three and a half years. Uh, I would never turn even this church over to people who had only been following the Lord for three years. Uh, I just would say, well, they're not ready. They're not ready. And, uh, but Christ was like, no, they're ready. I'll make them ready, which was amazing. The other thing that was crazy is that he has this new covenant, which, which is for the whole world, but all of his original followers are Jews, raised to believe that the covenant God made with Israel was still in effect and always would be. But Jesus left no room for that kind of thinking. Uh, his first followers did, however, and who can blame them? Uh, they were all, all good, observant, Sabbath-keeping, uh, kosher-keeping, aware of the Old Testament law people. Raised in their Jewish faith to believe that when Messiah came, he would restore Israel to its original, uh, to, to its days of, of, of David and Solomon. Uh, Israel, the disciples included, believed that Messiah was going to be a political figure uh, and a military leader. Uh, the disciples assumed that Jesus would get around at some point to acting more Messiah-like. Even after he died, after 40 days of explaining everything to them again, and on the day of his ascension, Luke tells us in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, what they were all talking about right before he left. They kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? Jesus told him, no, but here's what I want you to do next. After Pentecost, I want you all to leave Jerusalem, go all over the world, and tell everybody about what I have done for them. Did the disciples do that? No. They stayed in Jerusalem for years, probably assuming that they should stay close to the center of Jewish power, waiting for Jesus to return and take charge. The first believers met every afternoon on the temple grounds, even though Jesus had made it clear that the temple was obsolete. When we read the book of Acts, we see that it took the first Christians a long time 
to enter into the new covenant, to fully grasp how when the new came, it replaced the old. Go with me now to Acts chapter 10, and you'll see what I'm talking about. As you're turning there, I'll tell you that Acts chapter 10 is recorded. It's, it, scholars believe it's about five to seven years after the ascension of Christ. The, the disciples have been in charge for, for at least five years. All right, in Acts chapter 10, there's a centurion named Cornelius who's a great guy. And they all have this hunger to know about Christianity. So they heard that Peter was nearby. And they, they, Cornelius sent some guys to uh, visit with Peter. Uh, and Peter's in another town, and it says, uh, verse 9, About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. You know anything about kosher meat? Okay, so what's happening here? Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. So here we are now five years after the old covenant was made obsolete, and one of the key leaders of the church is still keeping kosher because that's how he was raised. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. Meanwhile, the, the Gentiles arrived at the house where Peter was staying and invited him to come to Cornelius' house. And the Holy Spirit said, go with them. So Peter did. Verse 24, he, the following day he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them. As Peter uh, entered the house, Cornelius met him. He fell at his feet. Peter said, don't do that. Uh, and while they were talking, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. And you need to read Gentile people. He said to them, you're well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. It's against our law for me to come into this house. What law? Is that the law that Jesus laid down when he went to the Samaritans? Is that the law Jesus laid down? No, absolutely not. Jesus had said that he had come to the whole world to save the whole world. But Peter is still keeping the old covenant in regards to fraternization with Gentiles. So they have this time of fellowship, and Peter's like, wow, you know, uh, these folks really do want to know Jesus. So Peter begins to speak, and he tells them all about Jesus. Verse 34, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. I now realize, says the future pope, I now realize that you guys are included in the same promises. It takes these guys a while to realize it. He goes on to say, but I want you guys to remember, the message came through Israel, and this is Jesus, and he makes sure that they understand that. And verse 44, while he was still talking, the Holy Spirit just interrupted him because God was like, okay, enough, move. And he fell on, uh, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message, and the circumcised believers, who are the Jewish believers, who had come with Peter, were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And then Peter said, well, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized. So he baptizes them, and they stay several days and have fellowship. So what was the news back in Jerusalem? Was everybody back in Jerusalem excited about this, that they finally got it? Absolutely not. Read uh, verse 2 of chapter 11. 
When Peter went to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. And Peter's saying, what was I expected to do? God obviously has saved these people. And, and, and he tells them the whole story about his vision and how God told him to, to, to eat kosher, non-kosher. Didn't matter anymore. Nothing impure or clean has been created by God. And human beings are not non-kosher. And then he says, and the Holy Spirit fell on them. So Peter says in verse 17, if God gave him the same gift he gave us uh, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think I could stand in God's way? And then it says the believers said, we, all, we believe you. We have no further objections. And they said, let's, 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 let's just agree that God has granted repentance even to Gentiles. People, we are in Acts chapter 10. And the disciples are just figuring this out. Uh, that when Jesus said to Nicodemus, God so loved the entire world that he gave his son to the entire world that everyone in the entire world could be saved. The church didn't completely understand the magnitude of this. And you know what? They, didn't, they still didn't get it. Go to Acts chapter 15. Acts 15. In Acts 15, uh, a group of Jewish Christians went up from Jerusalem to Antioch to hassle the Antioch Gentiles uh, because they, and they said to them, hey, you guys aren't circumcised. Unless you're circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved by Jesus. These people believed that a person would have to become Jewish and then become a Christian. And Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them. So the church in Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas down to Jerusalem to get a ruling from Peter, James, John, who were the heads of the church. So they, 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 they go, and, and when they get there, there's some people who, you know, they, 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 it's kind of a, a, a bit of a trial. And some guys stand up and say, here's what's going on in Antioch, you know. And then Paul and Barnabas says, well, we'll tell you what's going on in Antioch. All these people are serving the Lord Jesus with or without your permission. So then it says, after a while, Peter stood up, and you can read about this uh, down in verse 7 of Acts 15. Peter says, hey, you remember 10 years ago? By, uh, by the way, this is now 20 years since Christ left, and they still haven't quite figured it out. He says, do you remember 15 years ago, and, and uh, I went to Cornelius' house, and all that happened? Well, he says, I, you know, this is that. This is what's happening. And soon James was standing up and making a ruling where he said, you know what? Gentiles don't have to be circumcised. And that was the church's ruling. And no one can tell a Gentile they have to be circumcised. And not only that, Gentiles don't have to keep the old covenant. And they give them four regulations that make table fellowship possible between Jews and Gentiles. And they send a really sweet letter to the believers uh, at Antioch. All right, you'll want to read all that slower, but I just walked you through Acts 1 through 15 because I want to encourage you, especially those of you who, like me, were raised in churches that had one foot in the Old Testament and one foot in the New Testament and didn't understand the difference and didn't teach the difference. In the churches I grew up in, the sermons were full of both Old Testament and New with no distinction between what I, was, what I was required to do to please God. Churches where the Ten Commands held the same sway as the Sermon on the Mount. Churches where people continually taught Old Covenant principles and practices. Uh, and this type of church uh, typically requires legalistic behaviors, written and unwritten, in order to be part of the inner circle. And, uh, and, and they'll even add new 
thou shalt not to uh, the long list. Uh, some of us have been taught by preachers and Sunday school teachers that the Bible is the Bible is the Bible. It's the word of God from start to finish, and you obey every word of it, even the words laid down to other people and covenants made with other people. Those hold the same weight as the words of Christ, as if Moses and Christ are equals, as if the old covenant is good, and the new covenant's a little better, but you're supposed to hang on to both. The New Testament does not teach that. But if you were raised with a mixing of the old and the new, sermons like this can be unsettling to you because it leaves you wondering, okay, then was I taught wrong? What do I do with that? Uh, and my word to you is just hang in there. Read your New Testament and hang in there. It took the disciples a while to get comfortable with this new as well. Thanks to, to leaders like, like Peter and James and John and Paul, the church got it right, but it took them years. And so be patient with yourself as well. It'll take us a while to begin to think in new covenant ways as well. You can feel kind of unmoored and kind of like, what do I do now? Well, I would say get your Bible open and prayerfully read through it. Read the New Testament and make the effort because what's on the other side of this is a freedom that you may have never experienced before. Uh, a freedom that the, all the New Testament authors discussed. All right, so I've got a few minutes left, and I seem to still have your attention. So I want us to just look at one New Testament book very quickly, and I want to pique your appetite. Do you pique an appetite? Pique your interest? There it is. Uh, I want to give you an appetite for the book of Hebrews. Because the book of Hebrews, what does Hebrew mean? Jewish people. The book of Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians. We don't know who the author is, but we thank God for them because the book of Hebrews could also be written to Pentecostals, the holiness people, Southern Baptists, former Catholics, uh, where their churches still have priests, even though the New Testament says don't do that. Um, so uh, the book of Hebrews is really for our day. And uh, I recommend this week that you actually read the entire book of Hebrews. Oh, Steve, that would take about an hour of my time. <laughs> For today, let's just go to Hebrews 1 and blast through a few chapters as quickly as I can. Read um, Hebrews 1, verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. You see how Hebrews is saying, in the past, but now Jesus whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe, by the way. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful work. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Yeah, he became superior. The Old Testament never purified you from sins. There was no blood of lambs that would purify you from sins. It would just cover your sins until the next sacrifice. This says Jesus purified you from sins. That means remove them. And after he did that, he didn't have to keep doing it. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. So all of Hebrews now is going to begin to make this case that Jesus is superior to everything in the Old Testament. In chapter 3, we read that Jesus is superior to Moses, and that includes any agreement Moses made with God. In chapter 4, we read that Jesus is superior to any priest, even a high priest, who has ever lived, primarily because those priests were sinful men. 
those priests, those priests approached the Holy of Holies with some fear, hoping that they had covered their sins properly before they walked into the pure presence of God. Because our priest is Jesus himself, Hebrews 4.14 says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we, present, we profess. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses. We have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Therefore, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence, not with fear, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The Old Testament priest was bringing something into the presence of God. Jesus is in the presence of God. And when we enter the presence of God, we do so without any fear. And instead of us bringing a sacrifice... He brings us himself as the sacrifice. That's better than the old covenant. All right, so we keep flipping through Hebrews, and I'm flipping through it. I want you to actually read through it. Uh, look at what uh, Hebrews says about Jesus in chapter 7, verse 22. Chapter 7, verse 22. Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Guarantor, that's an interesting word. That means um, like a cosigner. It means like he's the bottom line and he's the payment of the covenant. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always leads to intercede for them. Uh, you skip down. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Uh, Christ is the perfect priest forever. Um, all right, so you need to keep reading. Don't, don't miss uh, chapter 8, verse 6. Uh, See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown on the mount. He's talking about the tabernacle. But in the fact, the ministry Jesus has received is superior as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one. Since the new covenant is established on better Promises. If there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, you know what? I'm going to make a new covenant someday. And it won't be like the covenant I made in Egypt. Because they didn't remain faithful to the Sinai covenant. And the, I turned away from them. This is the covenant I'll establish to the people. I'll put my law in their minds. I'll write it on their hearts. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. They won't have to teach their neighbor uh, or say, know the Lord, because they'll all know me from the least of them to the greatest. I'll forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. By calling this new covenant new, listen to this, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. When you talk to your Christian friend today who says, I don't know if I want to go to Cornerstone anymore, you know, what are they teaching over there? And you can say, oh, it was great. Pastor Steve this weekend taught us that the Old Covenant, the Old Testament was obsolete. And they'll say, heresy, heresy. And you'll say, no, Hebrews. <laughs> he just quoted Hebrews 8.13. That's all he did. And that's what we're going to celebrate now at communion. That Jesus has taken what was a beautiful pattern, the tabernacle sacrifice. And everything about the tabernacle and the sacrifices point to Jesus. And then he fulfilled it in his own death. And the night before he died, he, he, he told his disciples what that was about. And that's what we're going to celebrate now with communion. Let me pray as you empty your hands of phone or Bibles or anything, anything that would distract you. You open your hands. 
and prepare to receive the bread and to receive the cup of the covenant. Father, I pray cleansing from sin over every person that is preparing to receive and partake. And I ask you, Lord, that this bread would mean something powerful to us and this cup would point us to who we are in you. Be with us now during this holy time, we pray. Amen. So, uh, so now as the ushers come forward to bring the elements, uh, I just encourage you, if you're watching online, I know a lot of you are, if you've got the elements or something uh, resembling them, uh, get them handy and let's do this together. So as we've been studying for the last few weeks, uh, Jesus has been slowly, patiently, but systematically dismantling the ideas of the old covenant in real time, out loud, with his best friends and the crowds that followed them around. And he's been doing it so patiently because he knows that in the generation after generation of the Jewish people, that the fingers of the old covenant have, have gone, it's gotten very deep into their psyche, into their daily practices, into their worldview, into who they are as a people. And he knows, like a surgeon, that he has to be careful as he's doing this piece by piece, patiently, not too much, not all at once. And even as he's doing it patiently and slowly, you can read the disciples just desperately trying to keep up, sometimes getting it, sometimes missing the point, just like we do. But as, as Jesus gets to the end of his incarnate in a human body time on earth, uh, he names this thing for the very, very first time. He names it during the Last Supper. He calls it the New Covenant for the first time. And I get the sense that he, he knew how insane the next few days were going to be. And just to, to set the scene, just to, as a reminder, this, the reason we call this the Last Supper is because it's the last meal they shared as best friends before Jesus would be betrayed violently kidnapped in the middle of the night, lied about, rumors spread about him, spit on, beat up, flogged, and then ultimately all of their worst fears realized in one moment as they look up at their best friend who's just hanging there dying. And then a couple days later, the hopes they didn't even dare to hope come true as all of a sudden Jesus is back somehow. So he knew the roller coaster that they were about to go on, and he also knew that they would be getting together, going over every word that he said during this last meeting. And then remember, he said this, and what do you think that meant? And why was I distracted? Why, was I, why wasn't I fully present? Why didn't I real? I knew he was being weird and different. Why didn't I sense what? Oh, I wasn't listening. I, what, what did it mean? He knew they were going to be doing that. So I get the sense that he wanted to make sure that he had wrapped a bow on this new thing he had been building with them for the last few years and handed it to them. So that as they were putting the pieces together, building a new theology, 
building a New Testament of books that we were going to read for thousands of years, they would have the pieces that they needed to put that together. So this last meal that they had together was a Passover Seder. And this meal was as entrenched in Old Covenant liturgy as anything else. It's the highest of high holidays. As much as the Torah, as much as the temple, as much as the priesthood, as much as anything, this was the meal. And the meal had a rhythm and, and roles and little speeches and a call and response. And, and I think like, like religious tradition at its best, it was a warm blanket. It was comforting and familiar and a reminder of this special thing that they, the Jewish people, had with their Yahweh. And Jesus, as he's wont to do over and over again, takes it and turns one last thing on its head. So they're all sitting around, reclining together, very intimate setting. And Jesus takes the bread, and I'm paraphrasing here. He says, my friends, do you know, do you know what this is? And they're thinking, of course we know what that is. It's the matzah. It's the hard, almost cracker-like unleavened bread that we eat on this night to remember the hardship of slavery and also to remember that when God was freeing us from Egypt, when he said go, we went. We didn't wait. We weren't leavening the bread and waiting for it to rise. We just needed calories for the road because God was moving and we didn't want to miss it. And we remember that. We remember that when God moves, we follow. Of course, that's what it is. That's what it's meant since, since the first Passover. And Jesus held it up. He said, no, guys. This, and he cracked it in half. He said, this is my body. That's what this always was. You just couldn't see it yet because I hadn't showed it to you. But this was always about me. This was always about how much I love you. This is always about me doing anything so that we can be together. That's what this is. My body broken for you. So the disciples, confused and trying to keep up with Jesus as usual, took the bread and they ate it. Let's eat. And then the disciples, probably hoping that Jesus was done dropping bombs for the night, looked around. Jesus held up the cup. You know what this is? Of course, Jesus. It's one of the four cups. It's, it symbolizes the sweetness and the enjoyment that we now have being freed from the burden of slavery that we were under for so long. We remember that God delivered us, the nation of Israel. It's about what God did for us. Jesus says, this cup, and then he names it for the first time. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for the forgiveness of sins. And it's not just for you, it's for everyone. Let's drink.
There's one more thing Jesus says about communion here. He says, do this often in remembrance of me. And I think Jesus knew how hard, he he was watching his disciples try to keep up with the old covenant, new covenant, all the things he he was changing. And he wasn't mad at them. He, He was patient and gracious with them. And he knew that this is hard. He knows it's hard for us a couple thousand years later as our lives weave in and out and sometimes things make sense and sometimes things don't make sense and sometimes this scripture doesn't seem to like it has anything to do with my life and where is God here? What? He knows this is hard. He knows it's hard to keep up and it's hard to keep it all straight. And I can hear him saying, do this often in remembrance of me because it's going to anchor you to the most important thing that ever happened in all of this book that you're going to read, in all of human history, it's going to anchor you to this one act that I did for you forever. Do this often in remembrance of me. So during this next song, anchor yourself in a sense memory as you taste the juice in your mouth and you feel the bread between your teeth. Anchor yourself to the new covenant because it's for you.